Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you work, the way that you answer our prayers. We would be fools, Lord, to come now and attempt to do this without you. What would happen? Nothing would happen. There would be no fruit. There would be no purpose, no focal point, no reason. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would come and be with us, that you would show in power your glory to us. Like Moses, we pray for a, a taste of your presence and, and, and a reminder of your magnificence as we study these verses. Lord, teach us of you. Show us who you are and make us more like you. I pray, Lord, as we have tasted throughout this week that our, our, our joy in you would only grow as we study together this morning and that then we would be changed to be more consistently reflectors of your image, your glory, as we celebrate this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wave your hand if you need a Bible. We're in Exodus chapter 33. I titled the sermon, Presence or Presence. And if you're listening online, you have no clue what I'm talking about. But uh, presence with a T, presence like under the tree, uh, or presence with a C, God's presence with us. Uh, that is the question this morning. And as I looked over this passage, I found that there are so many displays of God's glory just in these 23 verses. I want to begin by just focusing on the first six verses. Let's jump in. I titled this Devastating Declaration. Remember where we left off? The Lord uh, had relented from his anger, and yet uh, as Moses had pleaded, there was mercy, but he also sent him to strike 3,000 down, and he said there would be future judgment for this sin, this offense of the golden calf, and he sent a plague upon the people. So we just have to feel how big that rejection of God was. This was a, a covenant-shattering event in the making of the golden calf, and the worshiping, the singing while sinning. And so we pick up a little bit here as we still see kind of the implications falling from the Lord to the people who have so sinned against him. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land with which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Pause there for a second, consider this. This is completely devastating to think that the Lord would be commanding them to go up. You see this departure now, leave from uh, Mount Sinai where you've been for probably about 10 months. That's, that's what we have here. Uh, there's about a 10-month period. He's saying it's time for you to go. And I'm going to send you on up. I'm going to send an angel. And I'm going to send you into the land. Hmm, that doesn't sound all bad, right? I mean, promised land? That sounds great. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. We get milk and honey out here. All we have is this, this, this weird heavenly bread. 
that we have to pick up. It's so burdensome, right? Like every morning, we have to go pick it up. Oh, and the heavenly, divinely given water that we're drinking in the middle of the desert, it's, ah, it's frustrating to have to deal with that. So we want to go to the land of promise. Now, this was a great and anticipated thing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And if, if the Lord's going to send an angel to drive out all of these people, that's great, right? And then he says this, but, but I will not go up, up, up among you, lest I consume you on the way. Now, rewind a little bit here because we have journeyed through chapter upon chapter of detail given about the building of the tabernacle. Where was the tabernacle to be placed? In the middle of the camp of the Israelites, right as the epicenter of their life and their worship and their journey all along the way. God among his people, God with us. And he says now, no, not going to do that. Plans have changed. You have sinned. You are a stiff-necked people, he says. We find this phrase describing Israel over and over and over. Stubbornly sinful, obstinate. What's strange about this is to think that this is, in, in, in a way, this is God's mercy. He says, listen, if I go up among you, I'm going to consume you. It's too dangerous for me to be in your midst. The way that you are behaving. It's not going to work. Now, there might be some who are doing the math and saying, well, here's the thing. I mean, we get an angel. We get milk and honey. We get the promised land. We don't have to worry about all the ites, Jebusites, Hittites, ites. So what's the big deal? I mean, that's kind of a win-win. The, the, the added benefit is we don't have to worry about God being displeased with us. If he's not with us, there's no accountability, right? That sounds like a win-win. We get his blessing, we get his promises, but we don't have to worry about his presence. Hmm. How will they respond? Oh, thankfully, we have in view, verse 4, the right response. Let's see. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now... Take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Wow. It's the right response. They're horrified at this. They understand how significant it is that God would say, I'm going to give you all these blessings, but, but, but I'm not going to go with you. What's interesting about their attempt of making an idol is they, they wanted more of God. But they did it on their own terms. They did it in the way that seemed right to them. We'll make something that we can see and bow to and even touch and carry. We want more of you, God. But in doing so, they actually what? They, they got less. So they stripped themselves of their ornaments. Now, I had to dig on this because this, this is an interesting display. 
It's a display of mourning or of grief. It's commanded by the Lord. So God was, was, was giving the people a command that would be a visual display of their, of their grief. And we see this in different passages, certainly even in the New Testament, when, when people would grieve at, at the loss of a loved one. They would put on uh, black clothes and dust and ashes. They would repent and different visuals here. In this context, it's take off all these ornaments. What are these ornaments? These ornaments were gifts from God. They were victory symbols. They had looted the Egyptians, so they come out. And if you do any study in ancient Egyptian jewelry, you'll find that they love their jewelry. They had some massive rocks and stones and gold and incredible necklaces and all kinds of different things they would wear on their hands and, and ears. As we saw the, even in the making of the golden calf, right? They took their, their earrings and they melted them down. So God says, Enough with the ornaments. Put them away. It's a display of their grief. But the other thing that struck me is that in looting the Egyptians of their ornaments, what kind of shapes would these ornaments carry? What images would they be made in likenesses of? The pantheon of Egyptian gods. They literally had been wearing likenesses of these images these idols that god had so decimated on their way out and so whether it be the the viper the the serpent or all of these other gods there might have been even been some representations of that golden calf that were still on the people he says that's it put them away a massive amount of wealth was now taken and put away for good that's it it's not okay to wear this anymore Remember the golden calf and what happened. Hmm. So God's diminished presence, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now consider this for a second. This is not the tabernacle. This is not at all what God has given as his best in the center of the camp. This is simply God saying, listen, I'm going to meet with you, Moses. And it's not going to be in the middle of the camp. It's going to be far removed from the camp because these people, these people would be consumed if we set this up in the middle. And it's not going to be glorious. It's not going to be spectacular. None of all of, the, of these intricate commands that I've given are going to go into this tent. This is just going to be a tent. It was just a regular old tent out away from the camp. And Moses would there, go there and he would meet with God. And, and if you wanted to go and uh, worship the Lord, you had to go outside the camp. You had to go and show that you were going to worship the Lord. This is interesting too. Because in doing so, it wasn't just assumed that everybody was on the same page. If you wanted to go, you had to be willing to show it. I, I am going outside the camp to meet with the Lord. I'm going to talk to Moses and ask him on my behalf to intercede. And so you had this. Now, how long this went on, we don't know. But it happened this way for at least long enough for these descriptors to be given. 
outside the camp. Now, verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that it's far removed from the camp, but not so far that they can't see it. The other thing to think is it's, it must be somehow visible uh, such that everybody can stand at his tent and see Moses enter into the tent of meeting. And when, verse 9, Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would, would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. There's some incredible details going on here. You see Moses functioning still as this mediator appointed by God. He goes out. But here's what's different about this. Unlike other times where the Lord has met with Moses face to face or one on one. It's been hidden away from the sight of the people, right? Come up to me on the mountain. No one else comes. No one can see us meet together. And such that they don't even know if he was alive there at one point. Now they see Moses go into the tent and they see the pillar of cloud descend and meet with Moses. What does this say to those who would be thinking of mutiny? Tired of Moses, thinking we should fast track this promised land thing. Maybe it's not such a bad deal to take the promise without the presence. It says that man is, in fact, God's appointed mediator. God is meeting with him. Maybe we should listen to his voice. Maybe we should pay attention to the things that he gives us as commands. I think it would have been a sobering thing. And a very hopeful thing because you know the, the role that Moses was playing was to, to be a mediator between the God who would so quickly consume the whole camp in their sin. I think this was a period of time where the regard for Moses and his role in Israel was heightened. They understood it much more. Now it speaks of Joshua here. Moses we know is over 80 at this point. It's likely that when they say Joshua is a young man, well, compared to Moses, young, but he might have even been close to 40 at this point. So here he is, and he stands guard at the tent of meeting. Why is he doing this? Well, he doesn't want anybody to come in and enrage the Lord. So he's guarding not only the tent where the Lord is, is, has, has said he will meet, but he's, in a sense, protecting Israel from making a dumb decision again and bringing wrath upon themselves. I love to see how Moses and Joshua work together. That, to me, that's new. I, I, I just hadn't noticed this, this partnership uh, between Moses and Joshua as we move through. Now, let's move into verse 12, the three petitions of Moses. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Three petitions of Moses. I shorten these down. The first is this. Show me your ways. Lord, show me your ways. Why? Well, I, I, want, I want to find favor in your sight. I, I want to please you. Here's a strange thing about this request. Show me your ways. He has been face to face with the Lord repeatedly. And he's asking for a greater understanding of God. Tell me more. I want to know more who you are, what you expect from us. How can we please you? I, I want to understand this more. I think both on a personal level, this is for Moses, but also for the people. This benefits his people. You see this connected. I, I want to know you more and, and find your favor, but also this nation is your people. The more I understand your ways, the more I can help these people behave in a way that wins your favor for their blessing in the fulfilling of your promise. It's not Moses' people. It's not just a people. It's God's people. The people of the promise. This is God's people. And He wants them to understand the Lord more. That they may be blessed and find favor. It's hmm. a great prayer. Show me your ways. I want to understand you more, Lord. This is a prayer of a believer as well, right? I, I know you. I want to know you more. I, I love you. I want to please you. Help me understand how it is that I can do that even more. And think of the resource we have. Think of this. This, this book, my friends, is the answer to the prayer of Moses. The first five books of your Bible, Moses wrote. I think, in large part, as God answered that prayer, show me your ways. Right? The, we were talking about how the book of Genesis was just given to Moses as, a, as an account of the origins. Imagine how mind-blowing that would be for Moses to hear. Where did this all begin? How did this come? What's the beginning of this? And God says, I was there. Let me tell you. Show me your ways, Lord. The second request is, go with us. Verse 14, he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, it's almost like he, he hears this, and your presence, your presence. He gets there and he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? And... I and your people, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Wow. So the prayer, Lord, be with us. It's not just throwaway words. It's not filler. You realize that the presence of God is the single most important piece of the puzzle for, for every situation. Unlike in the Old Testament, like the kings 
where the Lord would send his spirit and then in the face of their sin, he would remove their spirit. We don't fear that. Take not your Holy Spirit from me is not a prayer that we have to pray because we are given the spirit as a seal, a guarantee of our eternal life. He is there. He is with us. Be with us. Bless us in your presence. Mm. What are we without you, Lord? It's as if Moses is saying, what's the point? I mean, if you're not going to go with us, if, if you don't go with us, what is the promised land, really? We get milk, we get honey, but no, without you, we're lost. God's presence without his presence. Friends, the prosperity gospel is that. It's that. It's the same old mistake. It's wanting the blessings of God without God, really. I don't, I don't really need you, Lord. I just want to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and what? Sell a lot of books? Drive a fancy car? I want my best life now, Lord. And, and you are supposed to give it to me. God becomes a means to an end. That's offensive to God. Hmm. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I was thinking about this. I had a friend as a, a young man who had all the Star Wars toys. We went and saw the new Star Wars movie. Awesome. And as a young man, I was just like, wow, this guy has the most awesome Star Wars. So we loved going to his house so we could play with the Star Wars toys. I'm like, dude, where did you get all these toys? He says, my dad. And as the years passed by, I watched and understood more and more. You see, his dad wasn't there. His parents had been divorced, and his dad had zero interest in being a dad. So instead, whether to ease his own conscience or just buy off his son, he would just lavish his son with presents and gifts and expensive ones. And he got all the Star Wars toys. But I began to watch and see that this young man would trade every one if, in fact, it meant he could know his dad. That's what he really wanted. It strikes me it's the same. You can have all the gifts, but if you don't have God, you don't have anything. So don't listen to those peddlers of an empty gospel who had promised the world void of a walk with God, a concern for obedience to Him, or a passion for Christ and His work on the cross. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I, I am reminded of this every time I take the pulpit. Every time I come up into this place to open the word of God. Lord, nothing's going to happen here unless you are here and unless you work. So please come. 
The third request is this. It's so familiar to us. Verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Lord, please show me your glory. Now, you've got to just kind of stop and, uh, you know, you don't take issue with Moses, but the guy is uniquely blessed, okay? He has been witness to a bush that burns but is not consumed. He's heard the voice of God. His shoes have been off. He's stood on holy ground. He has obeyed, and he has then become the instrument of God's judgment upon the most powerful nation in the world. And he has watched as God has done ten disastrous plagues upon the nation. He's watched as the Red Sea is parted. He has seen wonders. He says, please show me your glory as the pillar of cloud stands in front of the tent. And he drinks miracle water and he eats miracle bread. And I'm thinking, what more do you need, buddy? That is insane. What a display of God's glory. He has already shown. Why would he say, I want more? Show me more. I would say exactly because of that. That's the reason the request comes. To see him is to long to see him more. Or to put it this way, Christian, you will never say, I've seen enough. God, I, 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 you know, you blew my mind, and now I'm on to something else. Yawn, ho-hum, glory, t-shirt, been there, done that. Never. Never. It's never going to happen. Not after a billion years of worshiping Him face to face. Never for eternity will you ever say that. He is a God of infinite glory. Endless praise is His. And to taste of it is to crave more. This is not Moses saying, I am deficient. It's saying, my cup overflows. Keep it coming. I want more of you. Oh God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now listen to how the Lord responds. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, just pause here. This is what he's going to do. God is going to do this, and we're going to see this fulfilled now in, in the next chapter, Exodus 34. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. Now, those aren't separated. That's going to be the goodness passing by. The goodness that passes by is primarily audible. It's the proclamation of the name of the Lord. Now, when he says this, though, I will proclaim to you my name. He then follows it with something that is extremely significant. That is not what we're waiting for in Exodus 34. It is a display of God right here before Exodus 34 takes place. So in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the name, or Yahweh, he was, he was described with, I am who I am. That is the name. That is my name. I exist. There is no other like me. I am. That's all that needs to be said. But then if you add another three to it, Exodus 33, this is what he says his name is. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see that? That's his name. Another another display. It's like turning the, the diamond of his perfections. And you see this new angle. So he exists. He is the self-existent God. There is no other like him. And now he says, I am free. I'm free to do as I please. I, I, I am free to show grace here and mercy here and not here and not here. That is my glory. That is my name. And it, it, it's, it's hard for us to conceive of a God like this. It's the sovereign freedom of God. I would, I would challenge us from the Scriptures to make a case for our free will. I have yet to have anybody successfully do this. We talk so often about free will. It's all about our free will. It's all about our... I don't read it when I'm reading the Bible. I'll tell you what I do read. It's all about His free will. It is His freedom that is His glory. It is His name. And it kind of blows our minds. That is the freedom that God has. And if we are free, we are never more free than He is free. So whatever freedom we know, it comes through the freedom of God. What does this look like? The sovereign freedom of God. Here's a definition. The sovereign freedom of God is the glory of God to show His grace and mercy to whomever He pleases, totally unconstrained by anything outside of His own will. God is never coerced. He is never compelled. He never shows grace on the basis of merit. He never looks down and says, you deserve this, therefore I'm going to show you grace. That's not even grace then, is it? Grace doesn't exist. It's merited. Grace is unmerited favor. Therefore, to be consistent, it must be of the free volition of God. He determines from within himself, according to his will, perfect wisdom, perfect plan, I dispense and bestow grace here. Wow. This is the deep end of the pool, my friends. As it should be when we bask in the glory of God. It's the glory of God. He puts it in the context of all my goodness. And then he says it's the name of God. And he then describes how God is free. So I will take us now to Romans chapter 9 where the Apostle Paul interprets this for us. He, it's great when you have a New Testament author under inspiration give interpretation of an Old Testament passage. You can't pass it up. So let's go there. Romans chapter 9. This is what happens when you understand the sovereign freedom of God in the context of salvation. This is the term that I would give for it. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. Romans chapter 9, verse 10b. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, now listen to the qualifiers here, though they were not yet born, okay? And they had done neither good or bad. So do they deserve or not deserve? There's been no action. They're not even born yet. 
before that took place. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might stand or continue to show the sovereign freedom of God, not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we all say, whoa. Is he that free? Is God really that free? The twins can be in the womb, and he says, I choose to make you an object of my blessing, and I choose to make you an object of my curse. Paul knows exactly what we're inclined to say at this. What shall we say then? Well, is there injustice on God's part? That's what our inclination, that's not fair. How can God do that? That doesn't seem right to us, does it? Paul knows exactly that's our inclination to say this. And then he says, by no means is this injustice. And then he quotes our passage from Exodus 33. For he says, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he draws this conclusion, and this is glorious, friend. So then it, 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 you have to circle that. What is it? Salvation. It, salvation, depends not on human will or work, exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's why we say, God saved me. And we don't say, I saved myself. That is why we say, God chose to save me. And that is why I chose him. You see, there's an order to this, friends. God is free. And it is glorious. Now, here is the other piece of this. It is the mystery of his majesty. Because we can't fully understand this. This hits us and it has a thousand questions and we say, what do we do with this? And here's what Paul says and here's what Moses says. Worship. Worship. You don't have to have all the understanding to be able to worship a God of that kind of glory. Let's see. Verse 20. He said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock while my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here is a reminder for us. We see in part. We see in part. But the part that we see is the glory of God. Even if it's only his back. We don't understand all of this. There's great mystery here. But the part that we see should humble us and call us to sing his praise. The cleft of the rock is Christ. If Moses were to try to somehow take in and understand and conceive of the greatness of God, unmitigated by the, the sheltering protection of God himself, he would be destroyed. It's too much. I will give you a glimpse of my glory. 
and you can worship in the mystery of my majesty, he said. So let's just all agree here. There are things in the Bible, things like predestination and election and these things of salvation and God's sovereign freedom that are mind-blowingly above us. And they shouldn't be a problem. And they certainly shouldn't be reduced to seminary arguments. This is worship, friends. This is glory. Don't run away from these things. Run to them and bend your knee in worship of God. This is His greatness, His name. Lord, grant to us a glimpse of Your glory. And in Your mercy, hide us in the cleft of the rock. The rock being Christ. He is our shelter from the all-consuming God who, if it weren't for the place of hiding that He has provided for us in Christ, we would all be consumed because we are an unclean people, just like the idolaters of the Old Testament. Response this morning. So many things on display in these verses, but I want to begin by just asking this question. What is salvation really about? See, there's a lot of people that are sharing a gospel that I would call a little bit off. God loves you, and you don't have to go to hell. You get to go to heaven. True, right? That's all true. And death is no longer the dominating fear of your life. That's true as well. What's missing? What's missing? Well, you get to go to heaven. You get to see all the people in your family who died, who trusted the Lord. That's also great. But, but what's missing? Here's the heart of the question. I think John Piper asked this so well in his book. Let me read you this question. Friends, if you could have heaven with no sickness and all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? You see, what is salvation all about? Would you be happy with the presence of God under the tree without His presence purchased for you by the one who hung on it? I guarantee you this. If you are aiming for all of those things and Jesus is not the top of the list, they mean nothing. Nothing. And I'll tell you this, even before we get those things, we get Him. So the, the song, Heaven is a Place on Earth, might actually be true. In that sense, we get God now. God with us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. 
which means what? God with us. This is what Moses is pleading. Lord, don't give us all of these blessings if you don't give us you. There's nothing more that we need in this life than you. In fact, you can take them all away like Job. But if we have you, we have enough. That is salvation, friends. God is the gift. Now, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. It's, it's, it's gifts from the giver. Not to worship the gifts or to take the gifts and leave the giver, but that the gifts would draw us in gratitude to the giver, to give Him praise. That is our goal. So, be reminded of this, friends. David Platt said it well. We are tempted every day to do the work of God apart from the power and presence of God. What would it be like to gather for worship if the Holy Spirit was not here? Would we know? Would we be able to tell? What if in coming to this gathering this morning, in preparation to meet with the Lord, what if none of us prayed? Lord, be with us. What if there was no request for God's power to be in this place, to move in power, to, 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 to bless us with Him? What if none of us prayed at all? You know, here's a scary reality. We could probably make it through a worship service. One of the greatest fears in pastoral ministry is that we could do the work of God without Him. Ichabod. The Spirit has left the building. May it never be. Never. Friends, pray like Moses prayed. Lord, teach me your way. I want to walk with you. Show us your glory. Every day. And certainly as we gather for worship. Let's pray. Mm. Lord, you are so good. We have tasted and we have seen, we have been radically changed by you through the gift of your son, Jesus, who you sent to take upon himself our sins and to die our death and to buy us back through his blood from our hell that we deserved. We live because he lives. We live because you chose of your sovereign freedom to make us alive through Jesus Christ. And we worship. Lord, convict us of a tendency to be self-reliant, to think even more of gifts that you give than of you. Remind us that all of the gifts you give have a purpose, to drive us to worship you, to show our gratitude to you, to acknowledge you. Lord, convict us of days where we could go for hours on end without a, a thought of you. Make us a people like Moses who just are obsessed with you, who walk with you day by day, hour by hour. Make us more like this, that our faces would shine. The light of your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.